Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, August 9th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is August 14th. Each Tuesday we call in for wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Of course, for our friend Charles Willard, it's 5.30 because he's in Minnesota, and our little team's working to be faithful to Lectionary Year C. That puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday. We hope the discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop some perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks that are joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson, Tampa, Florida. Charles Willard, Minnesota. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, our text today is from Luke. That would be Luke 12, 49 through 56, and I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, You say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And that's the word of the Lord. Before we get into questions, I just want to highlight a few words. I'm just going to pull out of the Luke 12 passage. Uh, I'll just clip them out. I, I wish... It were already kindled. What stress I am on. Division. Divided. They will be divided. You know how to interpret. I'll put a different emphasis on that. You know how to interpret. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Just for some highlights. Uh, so I've got three questions for us to work with today. And Bill Hull, you'll get the conversation started. And thank you for that. Uh, first question is uh, Bill Wallace, who taught generations. Uh, through the lectionary uh, at Pharmacy of Presbyterian Church, which is uh, the church that makes this podcast possible, uh, generations. He, when he got to this passage, instructed his lectionary classes to read this selection as an Advent text. I'm wondering, team, if you agree, and if so, how does that kind of reading shape your interpretation? Bill, Hall, let's start with you. Your thoughts on Advent? Thank you for this and the questions to follow, Don. Uh, at first, when I read this, I thought, what? Uh, an Advent text? And obviously, I, I'm not privy at the moment to where Bill Wallace went with it, but it, it is an Advent text, it seems to me. Advent means preparing for what is to come. Um, and 
working preacher uh, this week uh, began by the, the, the three scholars. They didn't use the word Advent, but they said this takes us back to the beginning in Luke, the first four chapters. Uh, Mary's Magnificat about raising up the poor and bringing down the rich. Simeon in the temple uh, saying this child is destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your soul too. John the Baptist demand for repentance and later beheaded. Uh, and Jesus in his first sermon in Nazareth, preaching good news to the poor, release to the captives, uh, freeing the oppressed, and the, his own townspeople tried to kill him. Now, there's an advent for you. So if you, at least in where my mind went, Don, advent meeting, something leading in, something suggesting what is uh, to follow, uh, just as the Advent liturgical season prepares us to celebrate uh, the birth of Christ. So in that sense, in my mind, it is an Advent um, passage, both literally and figuratively. And it's important to me as I've worked on this to remember this is a message for everyone. Uh, the the beginning of Luke 12, the chapter we're in, says, first verse, Meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. Presumably the crowd was hearing this. Maybe he, so I think it's important, especially as we go into the other two questions, um, to know that this is addressed to all of us. And it is a temptation to read these kind of things and get into a we, they mentality. You know, they need to repent. They need to read the signs of the of the times, no, we, we. And I'm still working on that, Don, and with that, I'll hand it off. Well, thank, thanks. Uh, you know, Sarah, let's go to you. I have a feeling you are probably sitting near me in class one of those days that Bill actually laid that out. So I'm interested in your thoughts about using Advent to understand this. I guess I've had the benefit of rumination on this. Years of rumination. Um, preparing, longing, fire, water, cleansing, renewal, all of those things. Um, Malachi 3, verses 2, John the Baptist. Um, who is waiting for the fulfillment of a promise? Who is longing for that? Who needs grace? We all do. That's good news. Um Verses 49 through 53 seem to speak to a reality where there's friction with, between those who are family and struggling, to, struggling with discernment and um, reconciliation. And certainly we're not able to interpret the present time without the grace that Christ brings. Um, if we look at it without the eyes of grace, we take it into 
places that are extreme. And if we look at it with grace, suddenly we find that middle ground. Um, Mary speaks to this in the Magnificat. Jesus seems to divide our intent from our inclinations. Um, A pause here to ask who benefits when there's division in families? Who benefits when chaos is winning and judgments run amok? Does this not sound like a world in need of action? Um, Jerusha Matson Neal, I'm going to probably apologize later for her name, um, in her commentary on workingpreacher.org, uh, used a quote from Mary Oliver and her poem, What I've Learned So Far. It says, this is not light that leads to indolence. It is light that leads to action. This fire of love burns away our obsession with self-preservation, our idolism of kinship, and our false sense of control. It is a fire that, like Simeon's piercing prophecy to Mary, tests the heart, revealing the thoughts of many and calling for a baptism of commitment. Oliver minces no words, be ignited or be gone. And I really like that. So, yeah, I think it's Advent. I think it's an Advent text. It's a calling of the heart. Thanks. Uh, when, when, when I first heard that idea, it was easy. And now as time goes on, it's getting more difficult for me because I'm looking at at least three Advents within it. One is, you know, Jesus cross in terms of expectancy. Jesus to the world. And then within Luke, think about the Luke and literature, it's about trying to tap into what this mission's about in the first place, which is what Jesus is seeing around him. So it's Jesus to the people in the present day on his mission. And there's probably more. But to kind of cut to it, uh, I've seen the promise in here in the Advent world, which is I, I you hear my intonation when I read Jesus' question at the end of the passage. We're built for Advent thinking. There's just something wrong. But we're built to do it. Uh, and you go even to the parables in Luke and how he describes relationships. He's like, you know, can you see a seed? And here's what a relationship looks like. And this is what the tangibility. And Don't you see? Just like he's saying, look at the weather. Don't you see? Don't you see? So it, there is a promise in here is that Advent thinking really is possible, but there's this conflict uh, in that I think some knowledge is required for an advent to take place. It's like we may not fully understand of what is to come, but we're expecting something. There's something there we can hold on to. And what Jesus is seeing, uh, son of man, God and man, is Jesus human sees it and understands. Jesus, creator, understands. But the other human beings do not at all. No understanding at all, which I think goes to the anxiety that he's feeling. Charles Willard, what are your thoughts about using Advent as a way to work through this passage? Well, I find myself worried. Um, I'm worried because we... We do seem to be able to look at unusual texts and find 
and find some good in them. And I worry that those that what we find is not what we should find, what's best to find, but simply something that suits our our inclination, our understanding, our our where we are. I just I just I, I don't find Advent present in this conversation. Uh, I mean, in this conversation in this in this text, um, and but the three of y'all are so wonderful of making something out of very little or maybe even nothing. And the problem is that the way that our conversations are constructed, they don't, and this will come up even, even more strongly in the second, in the second question when, when, uh, when I get to speak to that, but it's, it's, I don't want to say we're off in a never never land, but we're off in a in a land that is that is further and further from the source of its of its of its creation, the source of its generation and the source of its discussion. And when you talk about the source, are you in part referring to the distance of understanding of two thousand years in culture as well? Well, yes, but I'm basically here talking about the distance and understanding between the text as we have it in front of us um, and and what we're actually talking about now, this link to that text. But the link has become even more uh, distant, even more uh, stretched, even more... It's, it's the way that we operate, and we do it... Uh, how do I want to describe it without being too mean spirited? Uh, it, 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 we're able to craft it so that it comes out in the way that we like, rather than crafting it uh, in the way that it was, and then saying, "What do we make of this?" That's my hearing, at least. Thank you. Well, let's. I think. Let's build on that, if you would, please, as we go through the other questions. And then I would challenge the team and myself to respond as well, because that's what this podcast is about, too. So let me get to the next question, which will help us work through this, I think. So the next question, which, Charles, you, you cited uh, as, as an area of additional concern, would be the author of Luke believed it was important to address the state of mind of Jesus. Now, I'm putting that out there as my opinion, because... Where the, the author specifically wanted to put in Jesus' words about how he's feeling, his state of mind. And so we have a direct description of the distress, and that's my reading, uh, and an overarching subtext of deep emotion. And in the 2010 sermon, John Debevoise, who's the senior pastor at Palmasia Presbyterian Church, came right, right out and said, Jesus is exact, exasperated. Now, why is this dimension, if you believe that's inserted there, made a part of this scripture, this state of mind, this distress? Sarah, let's start with you. What do you think? Well, I think there's some really strong friction in 
our little minds about what it means to be fully divine and fully human. And we are totally good with the miracles, and we like the big um, theatrical sense and dramatic sense of of healings and teachings and these, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. But when we see Jesus as a human, with our emotions, our failings, our frustrations, at least that's how, you know, I imagine it, it's really difficult to reconcile. Um, so I, I kind of, in this particular passage, it feels like Jesus is filled with frustration and despair and heartbreak. And I don't know that I want to see a Jesus like that because that's like me. And I'm not as interesting to me. Um, so I, I wonder that Jesus still sees us with eyes of love, that he can overlook our tendencies to catastrophize and villainize and victimize those of us who may or may not be in the same camps or who are, um, who are, who are with us, but we're not like them and they're not like us. So I find myself really reflecting on how humanity, and I'm putting my, myself in this camp, we are easily led astray like sheep. Um, we, we can be led into trouble. We can read innuendo and rumor as fact and take it to heart and become uh, enraged with what we sense is an injustice done to us personally. And I think we believe half-truths, and, and we buy the snake oil from the snake oil salesman um, who tells us or sells us what we want to hear instead of the truth that we need to hear. So Jesus is here, and he's unfolding this truth that we need to hear, and I'm certain it makes a ton of people very uh. and very frustrated. Yet we cling fiercely to that which does not sustain or promote life. So I think that these words are here because Jesus really is frustrated. And and I think it validates this sense of the possibility that Jesus sees and the failure Jesus witnesses all at the same time with those around him, including us. How am I doing, Charles? You're doing fine, as always. <laughs> well, you're next, Charles. So you, you still you. Why don't you have, follow up on this too? What are your thoughts about the 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 writer making sure that the distress or anxiety of Christ is is placed into this passage? Well, I want to. I'll read the beginning of the, the the first sentence in this text here. Well, actually, I'll read the whole text. The author of Luke believed that it was important to address the state of mind of Jesus. Now, if you think about it, we have no way of knowing what the author of Luke thought. We don't. We can see some words that are written down there that are attributed to Luke, but we have no way of knowing what Luke thought. Worse, the concluding part of that sentence is the state of mind of Jesus. We have 
We don't know what the state of mind of Jesus was. All we know is we have some material that claims to represent what they know. But that's, that's, that's with all of the implications, that's hearsay. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And so we need to be more careful in our, and it's one of the, it's one of the, it's one of the, the odd contrasts and links between the podcast and when our friends at Palmasia get back to talking about the scripture text in the, in the, in the lectionary rather than what's been the work for the last year, namely, which has got its own fruit. Uh, it's, 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 but in any case, there's a, there's an interesting, if you look at, if you were to look at the text of that have been worked on by the church folks, that is the pastoral staff and us, there's a there's a there's a space between the two. They work on a completely not, not a completely different, but they they take a very different approach to what it is they're dealing with in the text, and we take a different approach to what it is we're dealing dealing with in the text. They lead up to, and we we go and, and then they <clears throat> they lead up to, <clears throat> and then we go <clears throat> we go beyond. And what is missing too often is the connection between the going up to and the beyond. I'm going to stop. Bill Hall, what about you? Um, I, Charles, thank you for sharing your perspective. I think it illustrates what you say, Don, at the end of our podcast each week, that there are different perspectives. Um, if we all echoed each other, what would be the purpose of multiple? Uh, all I will say is I don't sense that gap between what we do and the followers of the way, but <clears throat> that's a matter of perception. Uh, Charles, you say we don't know, we don't know. What we do know is what is written, um, and that's what the canon is about, uh, by whatever process those choices were made. And um, back to your focus, Don, on the state of Jesus's mind, we do have here a record of what Luke and others remembered that happened and that Jesus did. And I think it does get at Jesus's state of mind, which is, this is not the only place where that is. There are some, with some frequency, expressions of frustration on Jesus's part, especially with the disciples. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not understand? And that, in one sense, almost overly dramatic scene at the Last Supper. After about three years, the, the, it's like the disciples demonstrated they hadn't heard a word that Jesus said, <laughs> arguing over which was the greatest, making promises they weren't going to keep. Um, now, a, a resource that I've mentioned before, uh, somewhat new, 
published by the Presbyterian Church is it's a multi-volume set of articles on all the lectionary uh, three years and every passage, and the short title is Connections. In in the section for this week, a biblical scholar Elizabeth Caldwell says, and I think this gets at your question, Don. Jesus observes what they pay attention to and what escapes them. His voice of prophetic urgency, that's her perception of Jesus' state of mind, prophetic, his voice of prophetic urgency demands more than selective attentiveness if they are to be prepared for what he knows he is facing as he moves closer to Jerusalem. Uh, to support that, the parallel passage is in Matthew 10, where Jesus is addressing, according to Matthew, only the, the 12 disciples. It, the whole chapter is uh, instructions, and it very closely uh, parallels uh, what we read today. I don't <clears throat> see a significant difference. So um, it is clear that Jesus feels a sense of urgency and um, to me, this is very contemporary. Jesus is saying it's important for his followers not just to listen to him, but to use their God-given powers of perception, which are not perfect. What's going on in our time? What are events saying to us? Uh, what are the consequences of the choices of leaders at, at every level of life, um, I, I I hear a a frustration, but a frustration that grows out of love. I think uh, I'm echoing somewhat what uh, Sarah said about grace and love. This is the love of a parent who is frustrated that his child is making choices that are destructive, ignoring uh, what what is there. So uh, I think Jesus' state of mind is important for us to listen to and to heed. Thank you. Yeah, and Charles, my the way I go about this, these readings in this case would be I I go you know to the author's intent, and uh, those of us believe that that might be guided by the Spirit, but. You know, just, just from a literary point of view, the author of Luke made a decision. Why did the author make that decision? Why did he address Jesus' state of mind? I don't think there's any – I don't think we're having a debate about what the state of mind has been placed in here. It's there. It's there. So I, I, my starting point is that choice was made. Why? And then why in the context of the – Gospels and the narratives of the time was that placed in there. And that creates for me some distress and concern and curiosity about the Christ. So I kind of go about it that way. You know, 2,000 years ago, but there it is. State of mind is there. And so my, my approach is it's there. We are, we are going to confront it. We're allowed to confront it. Uh, so for me, it's, I think the anxiety is this great chasm. Jesus, Jesus, in the arc of his ministry, in the arc of time, Jesus has information. He has understanding about what the ministry means. And I think as fully human, fully divine, 
that comes as a shock to him. For me, the upbeat side is he looks and says, you see the horizon, you hypocrites, and, and you can do it. <sighs> Maybe they can't. You know, and the truth is, at least in my reading, is Jesus, like, you can get this. I feel it. I see it. It's all there. Jesus is the only one that fully understands what's happening. The fact is, they can't. That's the pain here. They actually can't. And I want to highlight the difference between this moment. I would tie it to a mass. Okay. An antique. Take that to a mass, and that's a different kind of walk than what Jesus is seeing right here. And I'm also, and Charles, you know, I know I'm probably taking liberties here, but I'd say on the cross, and what happens? My God, what is the separation that's taking place? I think that that sense of hopelessness or, you know, making, making things up, which is what you're, I think, challenging us about. It's like, you can't just pull stuff out and make it up. You don't know. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I think what you're saying, Charles, is exactly the conundrum. How can you know? It's hearsay. How can you? What are you doing? And I think the gospel is at the other end of your question and at the other end of my question as well, which is, yeah, we make it up, and we sure do, and we struggle, and we don't know. There's this, this vacuum out there, which in the next question, I'm going to suggest we're very good at filling on our own terms. So let me get to this next question, and, and, and Bill Hull, I'm going to come back to you for this one. Uh, I'm struggling with the term hypocrite. How about you? And I'm not saying... I'm insulted by it or struggling it in terms of, you know, being used against other human beings in the, in the story, but it's, it's usage I'm struggling with. One definition, uh, and I'm dealing with the English here, you know, it's characterized by behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe or feel. What point is intended for the listeners of Jesus's day and for us, when saying this is about hypocrisy, Bill Hall, what do you think? Um, I found Mark Davis particularly helpful. I will quote a sentence he includes in his commentary. Uh, hypocrisy is, I would argue, Mark Davis says, is relying on God's way in the world in some respects, for example, anticipating whether but being blind to it in others, like the justice issues that, that we keep highlighting. Um, and, and that's a, a, a different slant on hypocrisy, it seems to me. It's that you're selectively listening to the gospel. And I would hasten to say that's not just them, that's all of us. And maybe that's a part of Charles' concern, that we selectively listen. What I found helpful in uh, Mark Davis, and extensive by Don, I'm just going to highlight a few things. Mark Davis includes every reference in all four Gospels to a form of the word hypocrisy, hypocrites. And it's interesting. I went through and highlighted what in each instance is focused on. For example, in one case, it's about giving alms to the poor uh, and that uh, you do it for reward. Prayer, the hypocrisy is you do it for show. 
your fasting, uh, there's a hypocrisy. Again, you want a reward. Hypocrisy is applied to those who see the blindness in someone else's eye, but not their own. Um, Hypocrites are those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Uh, It involves tithing. (laughs) It it uh, involves you want to clean the outside of the cup but ignore the inside and a comparable imagery, your whited sepulchers. Um, Now, all of that is strong language, and it has to do with what we would today call congruence between what we profess to believe and how we, in fact, act. And (laughs) here comes Bill Hull's reference to his favorite book of the New Testament, the book of James. (laughs) James, you talk about state of mind, Don. I I see James as a person who says, hey, folks, we've been at this for decades. Christ has been risen and ascended, and we're still favoring the rich and dishonoring the poor. And I hear tremendous frustration in that but also hear the gospel in that frustration. Get on with it. Uh, Grow up. We will never do it perfectly. We don't have a perfect understanding of Scripture. But I hear again in this, Don, the, the voice of someone who cares deeply about the listeners. He's not dismissing them or writing them off. He's saying, folks, I've made it clear, listen and pay attention and draw closer to congruence. We human beings will never be perfectly congruent. There will always be gaps, but we can move. Thank you. Uh, I, so many readings about seeing the, telling the weather, uh, you know, which is my clue about Advent. You know, there's so many, you know, you can take it so many ways. One is the, the, Charles, that, you know, maybe over happy promise that's like, you could do this, you could do this, you know. There's also the dark side and the other the hypocrisy reading, which is, well, you say you're good at the weather, that doesn't make you good at understanding the Christ. There's a whole flip side here, which is, you know, okay, you're good at that. I'm going to, I'll give you an example. Sometimes I, I might, you might hear a leader of an enterprise, right? I, and, and I'm not talking about any specific people. You hear a leader of an enterprise going, well, I, I can fix this because I'm the leader of a great enterprise. It's like, well, that's a different thing. Or uh, I'm a leader of a great business, therefore you should run what you're doing like a business. It's like that, that may be what Jesus is doing here too. It's like you think you're good at the weather. Okay, red, red sky at night, red sky at morn, that might be right, but that doesn't mean you understand something else at all. You've got to do the work. You've got to walk with Jesus. You've got to pray. You got to you got to see each other. All the themes of Luke got to see each other. Got to think. Got to be deliberate. Got to be intentional about what we're doing. You cannot do that just because you're good at fishing. Nice analogy. Doesn't mean you're good at building a house. It does. And I I'm thinking that might be a part of the hypocrisy here. So I would throw in other words. And if you're moderating a class this week, you know, try some other words on. How about pretending? Pretender. Oh, the good weather person understands this. No, they're pretending. Because you do the weather, it means you can build a house. 
fraud, right? Charlatan. I'm the greatest predictor of the weather of all time, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Now, overconfidence, confidence, selfishness, godlike acts of creation because I'm good at one thing, godlike. I'm good at cooking. Therefore, I'm going to be a county commissioner because I'm a great cook, right? No, and I think there's, for me, the anxiety of Jesus. If you see that, and we have it in our own lives. I've done it. I think I'm great because I'm great at this. It has nothing to do with anything else. Apply that to the gospel and then walking with Jesus that obey us. That's my thought. Charles, I'm going to go to you next, and Sarah, you're going to get the wrap-up. So, Charles, what are your thoughts about this? Well, this is the last thing I'll be able to say today, fortunately, for you all and for me. I, I'm, uh, I encountered a, a new writer that I had not seen before, but, of course, like all these writers, they were just buried there, and I was blind before I got to be confronted by this one in this particular reading. This is uh, Teresa Berger, uh, and she's now quoting uh, another uh, I'll call her an activist, an activist whose name is Lisa Fithian. She seems, she says that Lisa, Lisa Fithian seems to understand Jesus' call to embody crisis. She was a great uh, grassroots activist in the global peace-oriented movement for social justice. She has been arrested 30 times for intentionally creating crises, i.e. situations that force the powers that are transnational corporations, the media, Security forces consumers to cease doing business as usual, to examine the inequities that may be they may be perpetuating, and change policies. In an interview last year, Fithian explained, when people ask me, what do you do? She said, I create crisis, because crisis is that edge where change is possible. I wonder, is this not what Jesus meant when he spoke about bringing fire to the earth? Did he not think bringing crisis, crisis is that edge where change is possible? Was he not saying, I have come to bring crisis because business as usual means injustice and death? So, thank you. That's great stuff. Thank you. All right, Sarah, what do you think? (sighs) Let me reposition my screen. Everything went to sleep. Um, I think that this world that we live in, beckons with self-glorification and self-gratification. I see this in marketing slogans. Just do it. You earned it. You deserve it. Be all that you can be. And I said, we hold to this mistaken notion that we are the root of all the good that comes to us, and that when the bad comes to us, it's because of others. (laughs) And it's something outside of our control. Why do we know why do we know better than another? And that arrogance that you spoke about, Don, that sense of um I must be good at I'm good at this one thing, so I must be good at everything. Um I think that uh we we assume that we know better than another, um, especially when it comes to the mind and the intent of God. I think, truth be told, that we're still chewing on the fruit. 
from the Garden of Eden, that we're still chewing on the knowledge of good and evil and perceiving that we can be like God. Or we're distracted thinking we can be God. Um, and I think that this truth, this, this fruit, and the gifts that it brings are not meant for us. We want it to be for us, but it's not meant for us. Our hearts can't digest it. Um, I think we might make actionable the grace that is brought by Christ. It's easy to confess by words, and yet harder to live with an action. Um, it's harder still to make it a daily practice. Eric J. Thompson in his 2016 August 14th commentary about this passage says, why do we insist on pretending to ignore the injustices, racial and otherwise, around us? Jesus, I think you're right, Charles, brings this, this moment to draw our eye to where the crisis is occurring and to, pay, and, and to ask us to acknowledge that it's a crisis. Um, I, I think we've become masters of justification, giving credence to what defends our wants and our desires and varies from the instructions that Christ has provided. Um, here's the good news. All of us stand on the side of grace freely given. We've already been given it. Um, it's in no way earned. We're still practicing behaviors and motivations from the time before grace when we lived in fear. And we're choosing to do that regularly. I think that's the really tricky business. And it makes us hypocrites. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for that wrap-up. <laughs> I sure had fun today. Thank you, friends. And for those of you listening in, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. They make this podcast possible. And discussions that we have with that family makes this discussion have some energy into it as well. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A. C-E-I-A dot org. We commend that site to great sermons, discussions, differences of opinion, prayers, outstanding music, uh, and opportunities to participate in communion as well. You're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.